Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we try to cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Today on the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, we're joined by best-selling author and conspiracy theory expert, Mike Rothschild. Mike is the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, the critically acclaimed document of the QAnon conspiracy theory and its adherents. Mike is also the author of the upcoming book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. We're thrilled to have him with us today. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating and a review on the app that you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe at didnothingwrongpod.com to get our content straight into your inbox. All of our work is free, but we're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that ensure that we can keep doing this important work. Thank you. Mike, thanks for coming on. We're glad to have you back. Oh, thanks for having me back. Glad to have you. This is going to be fun. Your upcoming book is titled Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. We're really excited for it. I'm excited about it, too. I've been uh, carrying it around in my head for a while, and uh, I'm excited to get it out there and have people see all of this uh, crazy stuff I've been reading and watching and looking into and some of the rabbit holes I went down. And uh, You know, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Nice. How did you decide on this? How did you get to this book? You know, it it felt like a real extension of the QAnon book because the Rothschilds are mentioned a, a little bit by by Q, probably not as much as Soros is, but they're definitely in that world. So it felt like a, a, a natural next step for me to really go into kind of where those theories come from. Why is it always this family? And of course, I've got the name connection. <laughs> and I'm not related to the Rothschilds. And um, and I wanted to kind of understand, like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Rothschild? Why would anybody think that me, you know, some guy writing, you know, blog posts and doing podcasts is connected to this family that has trillions of dollars and controls everything? <laughs> Why do people think the family has trillions of dollars and controls everything? So it wasn't so much of, a, of an exploration of that Rothschild family. It was really more of why is it always those particular Jews? You know, there's a lot of writing asking, why is it always the Jews? But I really wanted to know, why is it these Jews in particular? What did they do? What didn't they do? And it it, uh, it took me on a lot of uh, very interesting roads, I'll say that. So what is the origin story? Because you you seem to have pinpointed an actual beginning to this. So how did this begin? Sure. And it's a it's a good question. And it's important to understand that with a, almost all conspiracy theories, there is a grain of truth to what they are about. They're not usually completely made up because then they can be dismissed fairly easily. But the ones that have just a little kernel of truth in the middle, you can't just dismiss them because then their believers go, well, what about blah, blah, blah? Are you saying that that doesn't exist? And then you say, well, no, that does exist, but the rest of it isn't real. And then you start needing to actually explain things. So the origin of the theory that the Rothschilds control everything, rule the world, fund both sides of every war, it really started in the decades after the Battle of Waterloo. And the Rothschild family made really the bulk of its fortune, at least its early fortune, in the Napoleonic Wars. So they were the principal suppliers of gold and money 
to the British and Prussian forces fighting Napoleon. The continent was being blockaded and the Rothschild, specifically the family patriarch mayor and his son, Nathan, who had gone to London by then, had come up with a system of moving gold and money back and forth across the channel. So they were able to uh, sell gold. They were able to finance bond issues that were able to fund Wellington's army. Hmm. And all of this, you know, sort of culminated with the Battle of Waterloo and Napoleon is defeated and the Napoleonic Wars end. And during the course of the conflict, the Rothschilds made a gigantic amount of money because the British Empire, uh, you know, the, the Austro-Hungaria, they were they were spending enormous amounts of money fighting this war. And the Rothschilds were making a lot of money off of the loans and the interest and the gold. So there was a, a sort of a, a need to explain how the family got this rich this quickly. And there were all kinds of explanations that they had a, a, a talisman that brought them great wealth, that mm. they were connected to all the royal families, which, of course, they were. But then there was this idea that started that the Rothschilds knew the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo before anybody else. And this idea had started to crop up in the 18 in the mid 1830s. The Battle of Waterloo was in 1815. So it started to crop up about 20 years later. And then in 1846, there's an anonymous pamphlet in, in Paris written by somebody going under the name Satan, who accuses Nathan Rothschild, who had died 10 years earlier of being at the Battle of Waterloo, watching the carnage being so close he could smell the smoke, he could see the you know mangled limbs of the dead, and he gets on a horse and he rides across the country and he ends up at the Belgian port of Ostend, takes a, a ship across the English Channel in a once-in-a-century storm, gets to the London Stock Exchange, tells everybody that Britain lost British stocks crash in value. He buys them all up. The news comes that they won and the stocks go back up in value and he is a zillionaire and now he controls the British Empire. So that story, which has been told over and over and over in everything from Nazi propaganda films, Alex Jones, David Icke, that starts 30 years after the Battle of Waterloo with this pamphlet that sparks this whole pamphlet war in Paris. All these other things happen, but it really starts with that story. Wow, that's really interesting. History, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I kind of read a little bit of history myself and know enough about this time period that makes me wonder how much this is related to Napoleon the Third and how much because the Napoleonic Empire ends with Napoleon the First, and but eventually Napoleon the Third comes to power in the 1850s. And so I guess if you look at it from that perspective, it would make sense for his supporters, which he still did have a support base and people who wanted him on the throne to have a scapegoat, have a convenient villain. And so how much how much was that intentional or part of their propaganda? Was that a was that a feature? There was definitely a lot of political upheaval in France at that point in the late uh late 1840s, you had a series of revolutions in Europe in 1848 that are not particularly well known about in the US because they didn't really affect the United States. But there was a uh, a real rising tide of socialism, of uh, anti-wealth propaganda, uh, you know, that sort of eat the rich stuff that, that you know, we still have. Right. And the Rothschilds were by far the most visibly wealthy family in Europe. So a lot of the anger at 
wealth accumulation, a lot of the anger of Europe's growing middle class was focused on the Rothschilds. And of course, it, it dovetails perfectly with anti-Semitism. So the other part of the Satan pamphlet, which was written by this kind of professional gossip who wrote a bunch of really other anti-Semitic um, I almost said blog posts, <laughs> uh, a lot of other pamphlets and newsletters and sort of, you know, self-published books. Uh, a lot of this also revolved around a train crash. So you had the growing technology of trains in Europe, and these trains were able to connect uh, cities to other cities, parts of the Holy Roman Empire or former Holy Roman Empire states to each other. And of course, they crashed. They would derail in extremely gruesome ways. And the press at the time really reveled in writing these horrifyingly graphic depictions of trains crashing, you know, limbs severed, people drowning, screaming for their mothers, that kind of thing. So a Rothschild-owned train derailed in 1846, just a few months before this pamphlet was written. And I think something like 14 or 15 people died. And it was uh, it was news for a little while, and then people just moved on. It wasn't even the worst train crash in French history, but it was a train line owned by James de Rothschild, who was Nathan Rothschild's brother. And so the Waterloo legend was really wrapped up with uh, James's perceived complicity in this train crash. And there was a lot of anger over the Rothschilds and their ownership of the of the rail lines in France. That there, there was a, a lot of crossover with uh, the naturalism movement. So people who thought that they were destroying pristine French lands, there were a lot of accusations of fraud and bribery. So all of this stuff gets wrapped up with this Waterloo allegation. So suddenly you have this pamphlet that accuses the Rothschilds of running the, these sort of multi-headed schemes to profit off of French misery. And this pamphlet is a huge success. It sells something like 60,000 copies. It gets reprinted a bunch of times. It sparks this whole thing of uh, support pamphlets, opposition pamphlets. This goes on for years, and it gets tied into the revolutions of 1848. So there's a lot of anti-wealth, a lot of populist fervor that gets really tied up with anti-Semitism right around this time. So- like you're saying, you've got nearly 200 years of material in this. What sort of research went into this? Where did you go? Who did you talk to? So I, I made the decision early on that I was going to primarily use the books and pamphlets written at the time. And then, you know, going forward, the newsletters and then the, the videos and then the Internet posts. You know, a lot of these people are dead. Uh, you know, a lot of the most scabrous anti-Semites of this period have been dead for 150 years. So it didn't it didn't make sense to me to try to track down some of the worst people now. I don't really want to talk to Alex Jones. I don't really want to talk to David Icke. Not that they talk to me anyway, but I don't <laughs> I don't trust them. And I wanted to use the things they've written rather than the things that they're going to say to me. Right. So I was able to really dig in and find a lot of really obscure books, a lot of newsletter archives, a lot of academic papers. A lot of the Rothschild archives have already, be, already been gone through for a bunch of other biographies about the family. So I was able to use uh, a lot of public domain work. I really relied on the Internet Archive because they've got this whole voluminous library of you know, really obscure crank stuff from 150 years ago that I'm not going to be able to get at my local public library. No, I might have to pay a couple of hundred dollars for some used copy of it. And I don't really want to do that. So I was able to find all of this stuff for free. There's a lot of newsletter archives that are out there for free. I was able to get some tips on various other articles that I was able to find, you know, 
newspapers.com, the Library of Congress, the Congressional Record. So all of this stuff is out there. It's just that nobody had really gone through it to figure out what here matters and what is driving the discourse that we're having to this day. When you went through all this, did you see a lot of similarities between the more recent QAnon stuff? I'm sure there are a lot of similar themes. Did it feel... Because it's a different time period, it's it's different source material. It's it's written in books and and maybe more long form. Did it feel different, or did it feel just a different form of the same thing? It felt very much like a different form of the same thing. It it, it feels very similar to the accusations that we have now. And what I found is you're really able to trace a, an almost direct line from the ravings of Alex Jones to the works that inspired him to the works that inspired those works, to the works that inspired those works. And they keep regurgitating the same theories over and over. So you will see over and over and over again, the Rothschilds in Waterloo, the Rothschilds funding both sides of, of every war, the Rothschilds controlling the British money supply, the Rothschilds paying for drugs and pornography to uh, you know dilute the, the minds of the Gentile masses. The, you know, the names change, the dollar amounts change, but the accusations of a kind of all-powerful super government run by the Jews and the Jew and the Rothschilds are running the Jews who run the super government, that stuff really doesn't change from iteration to iteration. So it actually makes it quite easy to track these theories and kind of find each mutation. And one of the things that I really uh, kind of drew the line for myself early on was I wasn't going to use this book to catalog every single Rothschild theory, every single Rothschild mention. I really wanted to focus on the ones that we're kind of still dealing with now. So if you look at something like um, the mentions of the Rothschilds in a book like Behold a Pale Horse, that's hugely important. Mm, Whereas some yeah. of the mentions in maybe some crank newsletter of the 70s, it's maybe not as important. So I, I'm sure historians will find things to quibble with here, but I'm not a historian and I'm trying to distill hundreds of years and countless you know tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of mentions into a digestible uh sort of pop book so it's you know it's a real challenge but i also really enjoy doing it did anyone in the Rothschild family actually speak to you or did you speak to any anyone that that is associated with them i reached out to quite a number of family members most of them did not respond a couple of them said Basically, something along the lines of it's a good idea and we're not going to be involved. I did speak a little bit to the to their family archivist in London who answered some questions for me and who gave me the names of some uh, more academic figures to talk to. And I was able to interview those people. But by and large, the Rothschilds do not address the the rumors and the myths about them. And that was one of the things I actually wanted to explore in the book is like, what what is the Rothschild response to all of this. And the response is to not respond to him. I and mean, it's very much similar to the way the royal family works of just like, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. Because the people who believe all of this stuff are not going to believe a Rothschild heir going on an interview and saying, well, no, of course, we don't control the 90% of the world's wealth. You know, the conspiracy believer is going to say, well, they have to say that. Of course, they're going to say that they're never going to admit their level of control. So they they really uh they let most of this stuff go because they don't want to put themselves in the position of having to prove a negative prove that they don't do this stuff and they don't you know that that's not their history and they can't really do that so they they really kind of let other people do that for them and i and i hope that this book 
goes at least some of the way to dispelling some of the myths about the Rothschilds that maybe you don't believe, but at least you've heard and no one's ever really said anything why it's not true. So this is kind of a book about the Rothschild conspiracy industry. It's less about the Rothschild and it doesn't have any involvement from the Rothschilds. I think it's it's true for me and it's probably true for a lot of people that I knew about all these Rothschild conspiracy theories before I knew about QAnon. And it was something in my head, but I couldn't tell you where I first heard it or in what context. It's just sort of out in the world. And yeah, so you've... You've done a done a public service by by synthesizing some of this so we can make sense of it in a in a controlled and <laughs> and helpful way. But <laughs> and and those are ultimately the people who I think can be reached. It is like like you said, the people who have heard all of, of this stuff and they don't necessarily believe it, but they don't know where they heard it and they don't know why it's not true. So I I think there is a lot of ground to cover with that large majority of people it's not the hardcore conspiracy believers it's the people who just heard something about it one time and would like to know more it's just no one's ever presented it to them makes sense indeed so what do you think some of the common characteristics are that are shared by these various conspiracy theory movements that we're seeing yeah the i would say that the thing that they have more in common than anything is a, a uh, an almost need to believe that there is this all-powerful group of globalist controllers. And of course, that didn't start with, you know, Trump's allegations of the deep state or anything like that. You you know, you go back and you call that the New World Order, the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Illuminati. There's a, a countless other names for it. And of course, I found even more names for it digging back into history more. There's the Committee of 300. There's the Hidden Hand the society of the elect, the club of the aisles. There's always going to be a group of people who are secretive and conspiring against you. And of course, that group of powerful people has to be funded. And the funders of that group are almost always wealthy Jews. And the Rothschilds are seen as the wealthiest of the wealthy Jews. So the thing that they more that they have in common more than anything else is this, this belief that the Rothschilds are funding all of these things and using all of these front groups and companies and sort of shadowy organizations to do all of this. So it really is the idea that somebody is paying for all of these horrible things that are happening and that somebody is almost always Jewish power with the Rothschilds at the very top. And I guess the idea behind it is, well, why do they do this? Why do they fund both sides? And it's because they want more money and more power and and there's no end in sight, right? They never, they're never satisfied. So we can never stop them and they'll never stop on their own because they're never satisfied. Is that the always the reason or is it, is it more complex than that? It, it, that's the biggest reason, just the sort of pathological need to make more money. You know, a lot of it ties in with stuff that you'll find in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. You know, this idea of Jewish power taking over the world and, you know, subjugating the Christian masses and eliminating anyone who dissents and infecting us with their outsider ways. You know, there, there's very sort of classic in-group versus out-group stuff that goes all the way back to the very beginning of Christianity. You know, the idea that Jewish communities had their own customs and their own language, and their own way of dressing. And it, it was always a matter of time before those things were inflicted on everybody else. And to do that required an enormous amount of money and power. And the the wealthiest 
Jews, you know, the re- over-representation of Jews in finance and, and in banking that's always brought back to the Rothschilds. It gets tied into the protocols. It gets tied into, you, you know, 12th century prohibitions on usury. You know, there's there's there are hundreds and hundreds of years of this stuff that justifies the abuses that we see right now. Well, and we've we've got... The Rothschilds and these conspiracy theories, as you are clearly laying out, it's never going to go away. But you did mention George Soros, and that is a name that's that's popping up more. And I don't want to say he's replaced the Rothschilds because what who replaces anyone in this in this world? And it always is just a growing conspiracy or or layers of the same conspiracy on top of each other. But do you do you see any real difference between what was said about the Rothschilds or what still is said about them and what is becoming a, a familiar talking point and the, the scapegoating of George Soros today. They are very similar. And in the last chapter of the book is how basically how the Rothschild conspiracy theory was replicated for Soros, you know, tracking down the exact origins of it, who started it, how it started. You know, Soros exploded into American politics in 2004 with his donations to the John Kerry campaign. But the Lyndon LaRouche team had been going after Soros for almost a decade at that point. And all of that stuff was written off. Oh, you know, that's just LaRouche. He's just a cultist. And, you know, forget about that. But some of that stuff was incorporated into the conspiracy theories that started popping up on Fox News in 2004. So they are very, very similar. The The biggest differences are maybe more differences between the Rothschilds and Soros themselves. You know, the, the Soros really was self-made. You know, he when he emigrated uh, first to London, then to the U.S., he really had nothing. He, he, he wasn't making it in London. He, you know, he couldn't get hired on by a London firm. He moves to New York and he was and he's one of the only people who has knowledge of how to get into the kind of growing Western European recovery. So he's able to parlay that into a, you know, ever more important series of jobs than his own fund. And of course, you know, we know where that ends up. The Rothschilds have been passing their wealth down from generation to generation since Mayer died in 18, uh, in 1812. So there's, there's kind of the old money versus new money difference. I would say the biggest difference in the conspiracies isn't their content. Their, their content is, is almost the same. The the difference is the is the speed. The Rothschild theories really took almost thirty years from uh, really from the Battle of Waterloo in eighteen fifteen to this pamphlet by Satan in eighteen forty six. There were whispers, there were sort of caricatures of the Rothschilds and cartoons of the time, but not these kinds of conspiracy theories about them controlling the world, owning ninety percent of the world's wealth, all this stuff. That took generations to grow, and and you know it it really took an, almost another generation for it to find any footing in America around the time of the Civil War. With Soros, when it started in two thousand four, within a few years, it's everywhere. It's you know it's Glenn Beck talking about it every night. It's Bill O'Reilly talking about it every night. It's you know best selling books written attacking him, and even just a couple of years earlier, he had no real footprint outside of the financial press. So the biggest difference isn't, isn't the content. It's just how quickly all of it happened. Yeah, it's it's funny because I, I remember even a few years ago, Kevin McCarthy tweeted something out about George Soros and how much he was funding the Democrats. And he got criticized as, hey, this is anti-Semitic and don't do this. And he deleted the tweet. 
And now it's a very common, familiar talking point. You see it everywhere on social media about the Soros-funded prosecutors. It, it's it's become a meme. It's become a you know talking point on any right-wing show at the moment. Is oh, I don't like that person because they're Soros-funded. So yeah, it, it did. It, it is, I guess, probably gone up and down in its popularity. But until recently, it was kind of a little taboo and. They managed to mainstream it and say, oh, no, no, it's not it's not anti-Semitic. It's just it's just a criticism of the left. And of course, we know it's it's anti-Semitic. But I think nobody wants to be nobody wants that label. Just like I think we're seeing now. And and I know you've talked about this some that a lot of people don't want the QAnon label either because it has become very toxic. So I did want to ask you um, how what is QAnon in 2023? Is it? really something that a lot of people are still overtly joining and and saying I'm a part of this or is it something they're they're more likely to dog whistle to sure it's a great question I, and I want to um, I just want to go back to Soros just for one more thing that I think is really indicative of where we are in this moment I think it does extend to QAnon with a lot of that Soros stuff early on you know even the you know, the sort of the 2010s you know Glenn Beck and his chalkboard and his puppets and all this stuff when he was accused of anti-Semitism, he would say, oh, no, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm, I'm just criticizing George Soros for trying to take over America. This isn't about Jews. Why, you know, Why is George Soros being Jewish? He's not better than anybody else. Are Jews above criticism? And you find that a lot in Rothschild criticism and, and conspiracy theories. I mean, really, even into the 90s with something like Pat Robertson's book, The New World Order, he was revealed as having sourced a lot of that from uh, books of the 1920s that had in turn basically adapted it from the protocols. And when he was called out on, he was like, no, no, I love the Jews. I'm no, no, Israel has no greater friend than me. I'm only talking about the European bankers who want to take over everything. And I, these people are not above criticism. You had this actually very earnest debate going on in conservative media and Jewish journals of is Pat Robertson anti-Semitic or not? We don't really have that as much anymore. It's now much more acceptable for somebody like Nick Fuentes to go on Alex Jones's show and go, yeah, we got to get rid of all the Jews. It's all of them. They're, they're a plague. They all have to go. And everybody goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. And that has become much more acceptable. And I think with something like Q, you're seeing the same kind of mainstreaming. You're not going to get the mainstreaming of the Q drops and and you know the the sort of the, the numerology and the JFK Jr. stuff and the you know the Q clock and other nobody wants to be associated <laughs> with that. But the idea that oh sure there's a deep state sure they they control everything sure they rig the election of course the vaccine is poison you know <laughs> well, how could you not believe that that is that to me has become very similar to the mainstreaming of yes we are talking about all Jews. The the acceptability of conspiracy theories goes hand in hand with the sanding off of their weirder elements, because the weirder elements are not acceptable to a lot of people. But the idea that there's an all powerful cabal that, you know, defrauded Biden into office and is killing us with vaccines. That's really the essence of what QAnon is now. And it has nothing to do with what Q was because Q as it was really can't exist anymore because it really depended on Donald Trump enacting the mass arrests and well donald trump doesn't really have the power to enact much anymore except you know drooling morons at MAGA rallies so do you get the sense at this point with that in mind that conspiracy theories have sort of replaced religion for a lot of people 
I think they they have in a lot of ways. You know, we we saw the rise of QAnon pastors, and a lot mm. of churches were very concerned about the spread of conspiracy theories. You know, you're seeing uh, a lot of what used to be very far right evangelical tropes. A lot of this culture war stuff is now becoming much more mainstream. It's completely wrapped up with conspiracy theories. It's usually wrapped up with anti semitism. Now, of course, it's usually wrapped up with transphobia. You're seeing the kind of faith that a conspiracy theory movement requires is almost supplanting religion for a lot of people because people weren't able to go to church for a while. They weren't able to gather in those communities for a while. So they made their own communities online. And then it's like, well, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to my squishy church talking about social justice and trans rights. You know, I I, I want to go where uh, where where the war is. I want to get in the gap and I want to put on my armor of God. And so much of that stuff is completely wrapped up in conspiracy theories. And, it, you know, for a lot of Christian nationalists, they have been for a long time. I read a lot of Christian nationalist newsletters for for the book. You know, you're constantly talking about the, you know, Jewish Mongol plague taking over America and only good Christians tucked with their copy of the Bible in one hand and their copy of the protocols in the other hand, you know, their guns strapped to their back. But that was that was much more fringy. Even the biggest of those newsletters didn't have the kind of reach that a lot of mainstream conservative podcasts and TV shows do now. It's interesting that you bring up the Christian nationalism and QAnon because uh, as I was thinking about this and how I'd ask you about it, it's it's weird because it, people see it as two things that often overlap, but then you start to think about it and you think, well, what's really Christian about all of this? And as you're describing what was in those newsletters, I think I, I guess there are probably some Christians in history that mm -hmm. that said some of these things or even gave sermons to this effect if they were some extreme sect but it's it's a whole it's a whole new idea and it's all it doesn't feel like Christian nationalism and QAnon are two separate things it feels more like they're kind of the same, only not everyone gets it yet. Am, am I right with that? Oh, I, th I think they're very much the same. I think they, they rely on the core idea that there is a holy war going on and the, the, there is the good side and there is the evil side and the evil side, you know, the, 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 Individual aims of the evil side sound, you know, will change throughout the years. You know, for in the Cold War, it was, well, they want to Sovietize America. Uh, you know, they've got their Moscow infiltrators everywhere and they're going to infect us with the plague of Judeo Bolshevism. Uh, you know, th that was very popular in, during the Cold War. And now it's transgender rights. And now it's, well, they want to take your gas stove away and they want to make sure you can never have meat. And it's not even like the, the gun grabbing stuff. It's it's almost it's dumber than that. But it hits you in a place of like of, of manufactured outrage where it's like, no, you're not going to take my gas stove away. The the left is never going to make me eat bugs. I'd, I'd rather die. I'd rather die than see transgender women competing in men's sports. I mean, it's just the, the dumbest stuff. But it's very, very easy to get people really, really angry about it. And that that is completely tied in with QAnon. That is completely tied in with classic conspiracy theories. It is all iterations of the same idea that there is a holy war going on. And at some point you are going to need to decide, are you on the good side or are you on the evil side? Yeah. 
No, and then and then you start to look at what twenty twenty four is going to look like, and we know which which side a lot of these people are going to line up on. And I guess my question with that for you would be: Is the concern that we're going to see something new that QAnon will still exist? We know these things don't go away, but is there going to? You think there could be a new movement? Do you think QAnon will evolve? Do you think? This is just going to be out there regardless. How how worried are you about another 20, you know, 2024, new elections, all this money going in, everybody's riled up, everyone feels this impetus to do something. What how real is is the threat of violence and how concerned should we be? It's hugely real and I think we definitely need to be concerned. We you know, we're we are seeing in this country as we speak there there does seem to be you know, to use the the cliche, something in the water right now <laughs> uh, of a, of an acceptability of of killing right yeah. now, and it's not everywhere, and it's certainly not everybody. But we are becoming seemingly more comfortable with this idea that freedom means occasionally there's going to be a mass shooting, and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, freedom means that you can kill somebody because they knocked on your door at night and you were afraid. You know, freedom means you can kill somebody because they looked at you funny and, well, maybe they were going to do something to you. That is incredibly toxic and incredibly dangerous. And when you mix it in with the constant pounding of right wing rhetoric and fear mongering and conspiracy theories, and then you throw Donald Trump into all of that with his you know ready made army of believers who will go to the ends of the earth for this guy you know trump has to do a few things right now to kind of shore up his far right and i think a lot of that has to do with the covid vaccine but i think he will do that and i think once he really nails down you know his status as the front runner for the nomination i think we're going to be in some really dangerous waters because here's a guy who really seems to have no trouble with throwing out red meat to get people really unhinged and commit violent acts. And we are seeing more and more that there just seems to be a veneer of like, yeah, if you need to kill somebody because you think they might be doing something to you, then you go ahead and do that. And and Donald Trump's going to have your back if you need to do that. And that is uh, that is a recipe for a lot of bad stuff happening. So do you get a sense of how the QAnon community feels about Ron DeSantis or any other challenger to Trump, or is it Trump or nobody for those people? I think for most of them, it's Trump or nobody. You know, they liked DeSantis, but he doesn't have the juice. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have that thing that Trump has. He's too, he's too much of a politician. He's just a little too weird and not the kind of weird that these people like. The the biggest thing that Trump really needs to do is find a way to get the anti-vaxxers back on board because the, the people who really truly believe that the vaccine is this, you know, genocide shot are going to have a real problem with Trump's advocacy for it. So he's got to find some way to to split that baby of being pro-vax and also anti-vax. And of course, once he does that, they'll they'll go with it because that's what they do. They will they will ju- they'll justify anything to get what they want and Trump is the guy who can give them what they want. So I think that once he really figures out how to get the hardcore anti-vaxxers back on board, I think he's going to be fine. And I think that they're going to they're going to all fall in line behind him. And I think we're going to have a complete rerun of 2020 with, you know, these two old men kind of just sniping at each other. The same thing that we had in 2020. And, and, you know, I don't know when America is going to cast off this idea that everybody who, uh, you know, has power in this country has to be a million years old. 
But I think we still have at least one more election cycle of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you were talking about how one of the things that's kind of really terrifying you the most, and I would definitely agree with you on this one, is that we've normalized killing to a large extent in this culture. We've spent the last few years sort of making it more okay to say, oh, well, this person did this or this person did that, and that's why they ended up getting killed. The other thing I've noticed that we've sort of normalized is the idea that we're going to show graphic footage or share graphic footage of these things under the guise of people need to know about this, Mm -hmm. which seems like, at least to me, a really terrible idea, because if this was something that was going to actually work, it would have worked, oh, I don't know, 10, 12, 15, 20 mass shootings ago when these pictures came out. It would have worked after Columbine. It would have worked after Newtown, Connecticut. It didn't work after any of these things. So what are people trying to accomplish, do you think, by putting out this call for, quote unquote, awareness of these things as an excuse to post what are usually pretty much gore videos at this point? Yeah, I I completely agree with you that it is um, not helpful at all to unwittingly shove these videos and pictures into people's social media feeds. And I think it's actually quite traumatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, these are basically snuff films. And if you if it's not your job, if if you're not completely prepared to see something like this, it is extremely traumatic to see stuff like that. I mean, that that can stay with people for the rest of their lives. That's the first thing. The second is that the victims of these crimes didn't give their consent to have their their pictures splashed out like that. And a lot of these people are children mm-hmm. and their their parents didn't give that kind of consent. They just people just decide maybe for noble reasons to say, well, you know, we need people to understand how bad this is. If you need a, a picture of a dead child to know that a mass shooting is bad you probably aren't going to be swayed by a picture of a dead child. The people who need to be swayed are the people enthralled to the NRA, are the American politicians who who torpedo every single gun control measure, the right-wing influencers who will troll the victims of these crimes. They don't care. They they their their personal freedom their ability to to collect 500 guns and mm-hmm. wear them around when they go to get coffee, that means more to them than any victim ever will. Once we decided as a society that the Sandy Hook massacre was something that could only that only required maybe some executive order by a, you know, a, a namby pamby Obama who was crying over these dead kids. That was it. No picture is going to change these people. You think a picture of a dead kid is going to suddenly make Ted Cruz go, yeah, we know we really do need to ban AR-15s. It's not going to happen. They don't care. Yeah. So you're traumatizing people in the service of something that is not going to matter anyway. And I, I just have a huge problem with it. Yeah, it seemed like it was an absolutely raging debate over this past weekend with the shooting in Allen, Texas, of whether people should do this or not. And the amount of people that seem to think it's going to raise awareness to the point where something positive will happen, I'll just I'll never understand at this point. No, no, it's it's not. uh, And and you see a lot of bad comparisons of it, like, oh, you know, the showing pictures from the Vietnam War, you know, catalyzed opposition to the Vietnam War. There was already opposition to the Vietnam Mm -hmm. War. And yeah. the, the public, by and large, is already against it. It, it. You're just what you're doing is you are showing people who did not give permission their 
you know, corpses to people who don't necessarily want to see them. And I just don't find any, I just don't find anything acceptable about that. Well, and you've got people now, social media companies have never done a great job of policing, well, anything, but you've got, (laughs) you've got people now on Twitter that are posting this as research or citizen journalism or reporting, whatever they're calling it. But they also know that they're not going to get banned for this. And maybe, maybe a year ago they would have, and now they're not. And I know you don't look exactly at the statistics of this of of how much something like twitter has changed since it got new ownership but it sure doesn't feel like it's helping does it it, it doesn't seem like it's uh, gotten better under, no. under the current uh, leadership there has it oh no it's it's so much worse and you know that you know you can't statistically quantify whether your own experience on something is better or worse but i know my experience on twitter it is just it is markedly worse. It oh, is, yeah. I mean, putting aside all the technical problems, you know, now you don't know who anybody is. You don't know whether somebody is who they claim to be because there's no verification. And the only people who have verification are by and large people who bought it. And then you look at the replies of somebody who you do know and trust. And like the, the replies are all Musk yeah. super fans. And it's like these people are not worth interacting with. They have nothing interesting to say. They have nothing helpful to say. So the experience of Twitter has gotten measurably worse. It's 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 not much fun anymore. I don't kind of don't care about yeah. something getting viral or getting new followers. I'm like, it's it's just a mess. And I just once there's a, a real viable alternative, I think people really will leave it. And we just don't have that mass market viable alternative yet. Yeah, I thought the the Breitbart 2016 comment section was bad, but now it's just on Twitter Mm -hmm. and it's just the replies to everything. And yeah, you're right. It's not it's still useful for promotions. You want people to get your content, know who you are, get the word out. But yeah, increasingly, I'm just not spending time there because it's what's the point? This place is probably kind of slowly dying anyway, and there's no real alternative and I mean, I I hope that there is, but yeah, people, now that people don't feel like there's any threat of losing their account, they're letting their hair down and it's, it's gruesome and it's gross. And, and we've seen it with, yeah, the shooting in Texas with Jordan Neely and, and that whole situation and, and New York. And, um, I mean, it's, it's really, there's a lot of things that are disheartening out there. And I know that it's, it's tough to to see all this and if you try to put it in perspective and say oh the statistics and the real threat to me is not that high and but i think people do get overwhelmed by this so i i did want to ask you if because i think there may be some people out there who just need to hear this but have you personally seen people come back from the brink from the the being enthralled by conspiracy theories or sort of this vile hateful rhetoric is there a way back for the friends, family members, people you love? I I have seen people come back from it. There is a way back. It is very difficult. And what makes it really difficult is that there's no established framework for it. There isn't uh, AA for conspiracy theories. We're, we're all kind of making this up as we go along. And, and particularly when it comes to any kind of mental health 
aspect of conspiracy theories. I think immediately as soon as you start talking about that, people are like, oh, you're saying that, you know, mental illness, you know, all people with mental illness are conspiracy theories. Of course, I'm not saying that. But there is a there is an overlap. And the 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 way to get out of it, unfortunately, is different for every single person because every single person's journey into conspiracy theories and extremism is different. Every person's radicalization is a little bit different. It's you know has a different uh, inciting incident. It's pushed along by different things. So every single person has a different way out, and unfortunately, you can't get out of it unless you want to. Unless you see the problems and you see the toxicity and you see the addiction to social media and the the easy use of violent ideation, unless you start to see that as a problem, th- then you don't have any reason to leave it behind. You think everybody else has the problem. You think everybody else is the one who needs to be uh, w- you know, awake and turned on to the real problems. So unless you really yourself come to the realization that, hey, something is wrong here and I'm being lied to and exploited, then if there are sympathetic people in your life, they can help you start to get out of it. But for most people, they're so far gone that everybody cuts them out. Everybody who might want to help them just says, I don't I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're crazy. You're violent. Go, go away. And that is a very natural reaction to a lot of this stuff because it's extremely unpleasant. And the people who believe it are not shy about sharing it with you. And the easiest thing to do can be to just block that person and and cut them out of your life. And then the only people they have left are their conspiracy community. And those people aren't going to let you go. You're one of them now. And uh, Mm -hmm. they're the people who listen to you. And they don't think you're crazy. They, they, They believe the same thing you do. So it really does take a person realizing that there's a problem and then having people in their life who can help them define the problem and come up with solutions to the problem. And that is a very tricky combination. So if you're one of those family members of the person who's bought into QAnon, do you have any recommendations where you think people should go for advice and support if they find themselves in that situation, trying to talk down a relative or a friend who might have just gone off the deep end on this one? It's a good question. There's, there are unfortunately just not that many resources. You know, the one that comes up a lot is something like the QAnon casualties subreddit, uh, which I think is a really, really important place. I would say that for dealing with somebody in your life who really has gone down the rabbit hole, what you almost want to do is just try to connect them back to real life is, Hey, you know, I know, you know, we used to talk about baseball a lot. Hey, did you catch the game the other day? Hey, did you see the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie? Did you do this thing that people in normal life do? You know, if you live close to them, hey, you want to go for a hike with me? You know, they're they're probably going to say no. They're probably going to call it part of the deep state or, or say that you're in on the plot or whatever it is. But you're trying to connect them with the uh, with the with the normal world, with the healthy world, with the world where you can enjoy things and do things that are not evil or satanic or connected to pedophiles. And if you keep trying to engage in those very basic kinds of ways, you can you can present yourself as kind of a safe harbor of somebody who is not going to mock you for having these beliefs that everybody else are going to think is is stupid and dangerous. You know, if you have that one person in your life who is just that strand back to the world that the rest of us live in, you can help somebody out of it. And you don't even necessarily need to know anything about the conspiracies. It's probably better if you don't. Right. Because, 
the the temptation is always going to be to try to debate them, to debunk it, send them articles. That stuff is just not going to work. It's going to work for you to help you understand what they're going through, but it's not going to work for the person who is deep into that belief because they're just going to see it as part of the conspiracy. Yeah. Well, that's really great advice, and uh, we appreciate all your insight. Do you uh, have your next book in mind? What else are you working on going forward? Uh, I'm I'm kicking around some ideas for another book. I'm also looking at, uh, I'm very seriously looking at turning the Rothschilds book into a documentary series. Oh, uh, cool. taking, yeah. taking some meetings on that already, you know, starting to develop that as a pitch, doing some other, some other expert witness work and things like that. You know, I, I might do another book down the line, but I want to get, want to get this one out there first and kind of see how that develops. And then we'll, we'll go from there. The new book is called Jewish space lasers. It's in pre-order now. Feel free to pick up your copy. Mike Rothschild. Thank you so much for coming on with us again today. Really appreciate your time and having you here. Yeah, absolutely. Have to do this again. Thanks Mike. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the did nothing wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can go to did nothing wrong pod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word four, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A, BJJ, as well as DNW Pod. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong. <laughs>